Jay, Jay, guess what time it is? Um, about 9.15 Eastern. It's Thieves Guild time. On one hand, I do love the Thieves Guild and their improbably flashy outfits. But on the other hand, that means Kandra can't be too far behind. Kandra? The external patron of the Thieves and the Assassins. Oh, she's the one who gives them uh, mutations, right? Kinda. Uh, the Thieves get long life and the Assassins get superpowers, but only if they both pay the tithe. The tithe? You make it sound so sinister. Is it human sacrifice or something? What? No, it's just a lot of money. Sometimes it's just a bunch of random treasure. Occasionally she wants something specific, like, say, the momentary princess. The momentary princess? Uh, it was this gem that gave anyone who touched it knowledge of the past and the future. Showed up every few decades um, in Leipzig, Germany, hovered around for a few minutes, disappeared again. I think the Marauders destroyed it a few years back. And let me guess, it's connected to, uh, I don't know, let's see, Destiny's Diaries? Surprisingly, it is not. Okay, is it some kind of ancient celestial artifact? The opposite, actually. It was made in the far future and then sent back. Whoa, uh, which timeline? Is this an apocalypse thing? What? No, 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 no. The momentary princess actually started in Earth 1191, the one Bishop's from. Oh, so it came back with Bishop? No. Fitzroy, then. Or one of the other mulleted bad guys. None of those. Actually, someone much more closely involved with Kandra and the Thieves Guild. Not... LeBeau, the witness. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 194 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And as we mentioned in the cold open, straight into the Thieves Guild. Okay, so it's technically not spelled that way. No the hell with it. I'm going to go ahead and say it was a typo every single time it was written with an H in it. It is spelled, pronounced, and is the Thieves Guild. We've all seen that episode of the animated series, The Tithe, or sorry, De Tithe. Yeah, pretty much. But but yeah, I mean, we, we know it's the Thieves Guild. It totally is. So, as you might imagine, this episode is covering the arc where Gambit's backstory starts creeping in, and then never really goes away. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't know. It is a fucking bizarre thing. His backstory is so much weirder than you ever would have imagined until you first read about it or saw that episode of the cartoon. Yeah, man. New Orleans is ridiculous in X-Men. It is. It also has a network of tunnels underground, like uh, catacombs, basically, and I'm pretty sure that doesn't work at all down there. I am 100% sure that those tunnels would be flooded literally all the time. Right? I heard stories of, like, you know, people would try to have basements or even try to bury their dead in cities that are that close to water, and, like, coffins would float around when it flooded, and that was creepy, I assume. Anyway... I think last time we talked about the X-Men, we were with Gold Team. This time we're going to be back with Blue Team, but picking up pretty much exactly where, actually, where we started last time, looking at the parallel adventures. But Miles, do you, you want to do the honors? Previously on X-Men. After reuniting with the original five, the X-Men have split into two teams. This book is about the Blue Team. Cyclops, Wolverine, Psylocke, Rogue, Gambit, Beast, and Jubilee. 
They've all had various adventures involving Magneto and Omega Red, who interrupted a date that Rogue and Gambit were going to go on, because Rogue and Gambit are sort of dating. And it's been a great deal of 1990s fun. In the other book, though, in Uncanny X-Men, because like you said, Jay, these are crossing over a fair bit in this era and will do so even more in the future, future mutant cop Lucas Bishop has come back to the present to hunt down criminals and their mullets from his timeline. After Bishop's partners Malcolm and Randall were killed, the X-Men calmed Bishop down and Professor X spontaneously invited him to join the team because what else are you going to do when a murderer from the future shows up on your doorstep? I guess the same thing you do when a former supervillain who used to work with Mystique shows up on your doorstep. Seriously, it was so parallel to when Professor Xavier introduced Rogue to the X-Men. Like, uncannily, oh, that was an accident. So... And this entire story takes place immediately after Uncanny X-Men 287, which is the issue where Bishop joined the X-Men. So in our normal rotation, we cover adjectiveless X-Men, then Uncanny X-Men, one uh, and then the other. Well, I guess X-Factor in between, except we got too far ahead with that. But because X-Men and Uncanny X-Men cross over so goddamn much, we're having to be a little bit more random. I'm not going to say random, but more deliberate. The opposite of, of random. We're being more deliberate in how we order the stories so that we can give you the narrative in closer to chronological order. Exactly. And given that we tend to cover clusters of issues, that's not always going to work out, but that's why we did Uncanny before adjectiveless, and now you know. Man, I thought that the word that started with cluster was going to go in a slightly different direction. I mean, you know, it is X-Men, so that too. Or it is X-Men, so it could be Phantom X's other personality that split off when his three brains were separated out of his body, and one of them became a thief, and one of them became a jerk thief, and one of them became a thief also, but this one was female and the other two were male. Dude, that's not for like 20 years. Oh, that's probably for the best. That gives us a long time to try to figure it out. And boy, are we going to have plenty to figure out, a lot of which is going to get at least hinted in this arc. Um, which brings us to X-Men number eight, Tooth and Claw, the first issue of the story that was collected under the fantastic title, Brood Trouble in the Big Easy. Oh, man. So my collection from this era is kind of scattershot, but not shattershot. I didn't have that. <laughs> but I did have this in trade and under, indeed, that title. And I read it so many goddamn times. And so it was kind of fascinating to go back, you know, as an adult and as an adult who was focusing in much greater detail on the story for the podcast and to realize that, A, it's just as much fun as I remember it being, and B, it is gloriously, perfectly dumb, and I love it for it. This story is utter, wonderful nonsense. Ghost Rider shows up, and it only sort of makes sense, and it is wonderful. All right, so... Oh, yeah, and this, this story alternates between issues of X-Men and issues of Ghost Rider. We're, we're going to be looking at both because it, it, it is a, um, a crossover. It, it just alternates which book it's taking place in, so... And we'll talk a little bit more about Ghost Rider and what his deal is once we get to him. I have a lot to say about Ghost Rider. I feel like everybody who reads comics probably has a lot to say about Ghost Rider. I mean, I don't have that much to say about Ghost Rider. Mostly he's a skeleton who's on fire, on a motorcycle, and is the spirit of vengeance. And he is every bit as overwrought as that description implies. And there, now you understand Ghost Rider. Now you begin to start to attempt to understand Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider is a noble. Ghost Rider is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Ghost Rider is all things, from skulls to being on fire and everything in between. Has, has this become Jay and Nicolas Cage explain the X-Men? You know, I haven't actually seen that movie. I'm told that Nicolas Cage as Ghost Rider pees fire at one point, and that Sam Elliott plays like cowboy previous Ghost Rider, and I kind of feel like, even though I'm told it's a very bad movie, those two points right there are big enough selling points to make me want to see it. 
Do you think there's a cut of it that's just the Sam Elliott pl- parts? Because I would definitely watch that. But then you lose Nicolas Cage peeing fire, and that's unfortunate. Maybe. I mean, mostly you should probably see a doctor for that. Dude, that is like the 50th thing Ghost Rider should probably see a doctor about. I mean, he is basically a skeleton who's on fire, so once you get past that... I kind of feel like he would just... Wait, how does a skeleton even pee? Um, I don't know, from his skeleton crotch region, I suppose. I mean, okay, some creatures do have penis bones, like I know whales do, but humans tend not to. Nicolas Cage is not exactly a human, so maybe he's got a penis bone? Does Nicolas Cage have a penis bone? I've never thought about this question, but Miles, I, now I can't stop. Miles, and, and we're not going to discuss it here because we have a fairly specific rule against speculation about actual people. Okay, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Well, then I guess we'd best move on to X-Men number eight before we get any deeper here. Well, no, the, well, the question we can ask is not whether Nicolas Cage, actual human being, an actor, has a penis bone, but whether the abstract idea of Nicolas Cage has a penis bone. The platonic ideal, if you will. Perhaps, perhaps. Well, I feel like we've accomplished everything. We can just end the episode there. All right, Matt, just uh, put in the music. So the creative team on X-Men stays pretty consistent here. It's being plotted by Jim Lee, scripted by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Lee, and then with finishes by Lee and and Thibert. And the art is really solid. This is a Jim Lee era that I, for the most part, really like. He's got a good grasp on the characters. He's got a good grasp on the facial expressions. And he's a fairly coherent storyteller, and he draws really cool brood ghost rider. It's especially interesting in an era in a storyline like this to see the titles alternating because Jim Lee draws X-Men, but Ron Wagner, or possibly Wagner, I'm not sure, uh, draws Ghost Rider. And you, you may remember Ron Wagner from doing some Ex- Excalibur fill-ins that were like basically fine. So yeah, it's not quite as uh, serious a contrast as it was between Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, and John Bogdanov back in the Extinction Agenda because nothing is. Oh God, that was a thing. Oh, God, it certainly was. Uh, but anyway, with all of that said, what happens in X-Men number eight, Tooth and Claw? So we open with an absolute plot red herring. Wolverine is sitting at a computer, doing his best to convince it to tell him the dark secrets of his hidden past, while Cyclops tries to convince a very insistent Jubilee that now is probably not a good time for Wolverine hangouts. And the reason that Jubilee wants to go and talk to Wolverine immediately is that Bishop has just been added to the team, and Jubilee is concerned about this for, I think, fairly reasonable reasons. I really enjoy when you have two books that have an overlapping scene and you get to see that scene from two different perspectives. Like, it can be handled badly, but when it's just handled briefly, I think it's really fun. Yeah, I, I think that's something that's that's done well here, um, and that probably would have been fun reading them as they, w- as they were coming out together. I, I've, I think I've made my feelings clear about trying too hard to overlap, and the books do get caught up in that sometimes, but this is an example, I think, of that very much done right. So the scene that we get sort of in double is, is Storm introducing Bishop around, and the first person she introduces Bishop to is Forge, whom Bishop calls Genesis, which absolutely never comes up again. Yeah, I mean, that name will be used by Evan Sabiner, Kid Apocalypse. It'll be used by... Tyler Spring, also, but uh, never by Forge. Although I gotta say, that's a pretty cool name for Forge. I mean, he used to go by the Maker. Genesis is like a kind of more badass sounding version of Maker, so I'm into it. It also turns out that at least in Bishop's timeline, Jubilee will be the last of the X-Men. In particular, though, Bishop is super, super excited about meeting Cyclops, which leads to the world's greatest burn from Storm. 
when Bishop says, It's not every day a kid from Sheepshead gets to meet Cyclops, the X-Men's greatest leader. You may discover, Bishop. You will assimilate much sooner if you do not believe everything you have read in your history books. Remember that time I didn't even have powers and I totally kicked Cyclops' ass anyway? That was awesome, even if it was later retconned away to some stupid thing about Madeline Pryor that made everybody's character worse. Seriously, Storm is cooler than anyone. And, and as we saw from his foray and gold team, Bishop gets that. So Bishop meets the members of Blue Team this time, and he is generally starstruck until he gets to Gambit because he recognizes Gambit as the witness, LeBeau. This is a guy who, in Bishop's future, is the guy who witnessed the treachery that led to the death of the X-Men. Bishop immediately assumes that that means Gambit must be the X-Traitor, and he demands that Xavier scan Gambit immediately and that the X-Men turn on him, but the X-Men decide they have no time for this, um, and Xavier and Jean in particular insist to Bishop that no, as a matter of fact, it's picnic time. They're having a picnic. Okay, let's get to that because it's great. But before then, so Bishop knew the witness. We'll later find out he was partially raised by the witness. He knew the witness's name was LeBeau. So you'd think he goes back in time. He sees that one of the X-Men also has the name LeBeau. I would think he would be excited. Why does he have this sudden uh, assumption that the witness is the X-Trader? I mean, to be fair, Gambit does look kind of douchey, but that shouldn't be enough. One, the witness is sketchy as hell. Two, the witness is locked up in a prison for reasons that are never gone into being sketchy as hell. Three, Bishop will start a fight at any provocation. I don't know why I love Bishop so much. He's a total jerk, but I, I just love the way he's a jerk. I don't know. Well, and four, the fact that if Gambit is the witness, he's there as a member of the X-Men means that he has significantly lied to Bishop or left out substantial chunks of the story. And to be fair, he totally has. I mean, the witness wasn't even necessarily there for the whole X-Trader thing. It's just that he had those, has those weird time powers, those time perception powers we'll find out about way later. Weirdly, he also partially raised Gambit. That's going to come up way later. But anyway, first, it is time for a picnic. Bishop will have none of this. Picnic? I inform you of your impending deaths at the hands of a traitor, and you suggest a picnic? I mean, dude, impending deaths at the hands of a traitor and dark portents from a time traveler? For the X-Men, this is Tuesday. So at the lake that they go to, Cyclops is very shocked by the sight of Psylocke in a context-appropriate swimsuit. I mean, to be fair, it's a context-appropriate swimsuit and a Psylocke drawn by Jim Lee, so like probably twice as sexy as it needs to be, but... I'm still super convinced that what he is absolutely shocked at is the fact that she's actually wearing a swimsuit appropriate to the activities that she's engaging in, namely swimming, because that has never before happened in the history of the X-Men. Oh, that's true. Usually it's something that would fall off if she turned her head or, you know, something way too frilly that would take forever to dry. Anyway, uh, the whole thing is is awkward and weird and super contrived. It this Yeah, this... This plot element has always just read super oddly to me. Yeah, well, and especially uh, how thickly it's laid on. I mean, Lobdell's dialogue here as Jean's trying to talk to Cyclops about something and he's distracted by Psylocke. I think uh, that the, uh, the, the Charles professor guy, I think the, the professor is, um, is doing the, that he's just perfect. I mean, okay, I'm not saying Cyclops is the most socially adept dude out there, but come on. Yeah, he's not the most socially adept dude, but I feel like he's also, like, individual least likely to 
think it's relevant that there is a sexy lady posing in the water nearby. You know what I think? I think the penis bone of the platonic ideal of Nicolas Cage is probably somehow involved. I don't know how, but I'm going to find out. I still think that the simplest, most straightforward, and most continuity-consistent explanation is just that he's super shocked that she's wearing a reasonable swimsuit. You have your theory, I have mine, and I suppose the people who made the comics probably have their entirely different one. On the other side of the fashion spectrum, Bishop is in full uniform, because of course he is. Listeners, never invite Lucas Bishop to a picnic, because he will attempt to fight fucking everything. Case in point, Rogue and Gambit are busy flirting antagonistically and kind of adorably. Actually, they're, they're also wearing an iconic, ridiculous set of outfits that became become a minor plot point in the Rogue and Gambit miniseries by Kelly Thompson. It's pretty adorable. Yeah, they're, they're pretty cute. And again, I generally really dig their antagonistic flirting, except for a thing Gambit does, which is basically perpetually pushing her on her boundaries as far as touch. And it's supposed to be... It, it looks like it's supposed to be cute and fun, um, and it's really not. Like, there are points where she seems like she's having a good time, and they're bantering back and forth, and it's great, and then he does that, and it's like the biggest mood kill ever. Yeah, I feel like there's a, a disconnect between the dialogue and the art here, because the dialogue does make it seem very innocent and playful, but yeah, in the art, like, he's kind of all over her, just millimeters away from having their skin touch each other. Well, and she's visibly really upset, and it looks like he's basically doing the I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you thing. Basically, she gets really serious and tells him off about it, and then they go back to, to calling each other names for fun. Bishop has decided that he is going to follow Gambit's every move until he figures out exactly what Gambit is up to, which is going to get real awkward. Oh, seriously. It's really easy to imagine Gambit like waking up and Bishop is just sort of perched at the foot of the bed like a cat just staring at him. Or, you know, like Gambit's in the bathroom. Hey, mon ami, Gambit taking his morning duh. Like, come on, Bishop. Boundaries are important. You gotta respect them. Anyway, Gambit and Bishop get in a fight, and Rogue gets hit in the face with an exploding pie, um, and it's fairly charming. And Rogue has just about managed to broker an awkward piece when a bizarrely attired lady shows up and hits Gambit with some kind of energy beam. And before we get into who she is, we need to talk about this outfit. Oh, man. Okay. So this lady is wearing your standard ambiguous, possibly evil character color scheme of green and purple, but the outfit itself... It's not green and purple. It's not. No, she's wearing like teal and mint green and silver. I don't know. It looks more like a purple in the version I was looking at. Anyway, she's got a breastplate that's got the weird randomly crossing lines that sort of evoke gambits, although it might kind of be a tabard. Um, she's wearing armor. She's wearing what looks like a chainmail coif, but it, it's shaped around her ears. A huge cape, kind of a tabard loincloth thing, big metal boots. She's got a belt with a bunch of little capsules on it. Maybe she got that from Cable. But I just gotta wonder, how long does it take her to get dressed? Like, you know in D&D &D where you uh, have the amount of time it'll take you to don armor versus don hastily? Don hastily, by the way, is gonna be the name of a D&D &D character I play at some point. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, she's gotta have some assistance to help her get into this thing. Maybe she's got a squire or something. That's actually really easy to picture and kind of charming. I hope she does. She shows up in, and she's she's clearly got the same tailor as Gambit. There are just enough motifs in this outfit that, that, that evoke it. And as it will turn out, this is Belladonna Boudreaux. She is, surprisingly, Gambit's wife. Yeah, and everyone else is just as shocked as you just were. Right, seriously? 
Yeah, so the X-Men holds an emergency meeting, presumably to discuss the shocking news that someone actually married Gambit on purpose. And speaking of which, Jubilee refers to her as, as Mrs. Gambit, which I really love. I know, right? Jubilee's commentary, I gotta say, is actually genuinely charming. Uh, in, in this whole era, like, everybody remembers her as being annoying from the cartoon, but Jubilee's fucking great. I love her. Yeah, she's super good. And um, what she's got to comment on here is is a bit of Belladonna and Gambit's backstory. Um, as, as we learned, they were going to be married off to make peace between their warring clans. But then Gambit killed Belladonna's brother in a duel. And while everyone agreed that it totally wasn't Gambit's fault, they also agreed that that um, the murder had made things super awkward and he should probably get the hell out of Dodge um, in order to preserve the non-aggression pact. Now, if you've ever visited New Orleans or if you grew up there or whatever, then you of course know that New Orleans is run by the Thieves Guild, more properly known as the Thieves Guild, and the Assassins Guild. I mean, you know, they're basically the two political parties. Most people, you know, you'll wear like a little pin on your lapel to show which one you support. Um, it's all really all in good fun. Uh, occasionally, people get a little too heated in their disagreements, but... Miles is lying. Even in the Marvel Universe, those things are super secret. They are, but given how constantly they show up and how gaudily they're attired, I don't know how. Yeah, the assassins definitely wear neon as part of their dress code, and everyone wears big fucking metal boots and gets into sword fights and, sh and shit. So, yeah, I got nothing. In any case, Belladonna also has superpowers now, which it's implied she did not the last time Remy saw her. And there's there's a lot of shit about the Thieves and the Assassin's Guild and where Belladonna's superpowers come from and their rivalry that we're just not going to get into right now. We touched on it briefly in the cold open. We're going to get into it in excruciating detail in a later episode. But for now, we're here just to deal with the immediate issues and the broods. So we're going to go back to those. And specifically, we're going to go back to Belladonna's accent, which is absolutely incomprehensible. What is this supposed to be? It's kind of like if you took a Claremontian Marvel Universe Cajun accent and then squared it. So it's a Claremontian Cajun accent multiplied by a Claremontian Cajun accent. But then you just add it in like, I don't know, you remember when Tweedledope was just putting a bunch of stuff inside Widget like baked beans and a spider and an apple core to try to improve him? I feel like that happened with Belladonna's accent. People just put like, I don't know, sand and a shovel and a really confused dog in there and then just like shook it. And that's how you get that accent. Yeah, um, Lobdell does a kind of okay job aping the speech patterns and accents that Claremont has already solidly established for Rogue and Gambit. Belladonna is off the map. Okay, Jay, I usually do Gambit's voice, so that means you get to do Belladonna. My joy knows no bounds. <clears throat> Shush, child. Me husband and me got us business to discuss. Clan business. There are apostrophes in places that make absolutely no phonetic sense in this, by the way. Not that it's nobody's know-how, but I was raised by my grandpapa in the Assassin's Guild. And why nobody ever be dumb enough to take blame for the actual birth? Me loving husband was brought up in the Thieves' Guild. But there's an H. Yeah, why did she put an H in the Thieves' Guild? Maybe it's part of her weird accent. I don't know. But yeah, she talks like this all the time. And like the art makes her look super sharp and like very uh, upper crust classy. And then she just has this random collection of apostrophes and missing letters. It's wonderful. Well, and the apostrophes will be in the middle of an entire word. Or at a place where you can't reasonably drop anything in a word. Like, this, this is, it's, it just, it doesn't work. 
Oh, but here it is in this wonderful story. So anyway, now that the Thieves and the Assassins are back at war, and so Belladonna's come here to get Gambit's help to fix it. Apparently she just says hi by blasting him, which, well, given that he ran away, eh, I guess that's reasonable. Well, and given what we've seen by way of the type of flirtation that makes Gambit come back for more, it seems perfectly reasonable that that, that would be, you know, a pleasant hello for the two of them. Seems reasonable. So... Cyclops volunteers Blue Team to come help because, you know, X-Men thing, family business, whatever. Meanwhile, in New Orleans, a cop clocks a motorcyclist going 120, but is deterred from actually ticketing the rider by virtue of the fact that said rider is both a fucking skeleton and on fire. That's right. Ghost Rider has appeared. Now, the thing with this story is you don't actually need Ghost Rider to be part of it, but I gotta say, if you can have Ghost Rider show up to just derail his own plot briefly to be in somebody else's plot, like... You probably should. Yeah, Ghost Rider fills absolutely no function in this story. It's great. Okay, so before we get to who Ghost Rider is, as much as one can ever define who Ghost Rider is, this issue is written by Howard Mackey. The art, like we said, is by Ron Wagner, who we've seen do some Excalibur fill-ins before. The inks are Mike Witherby. Um, now, Mackey will actually later write the Gambit and Rogue miniseries, which deal with some of the plot points that come up here. Eventually, he's going to be on X-Factor. But remember, when we get to the Gambit miniseries, same guy that wrote this story, that's kind of important. So, Ghost Rider... Ghost Rider in 1992, as I'm sure comes as a great surprise, was selling like gangbusters. That's right, in the early 90s, a book about a skeleton on a motorcycle, both of which were on fire, yeah, that was selling really well. So this actually takes place right before the launch of the Midnight Suns sub-line in Marvel. Now, that was a line that was all about things that were dark and mysterious and really spiky. So um, these were books like Morbius, Darkhold, which was about the Darkhold Redeemers, Night Stalkers, which, which had um, Blade and a bunch of other folks. Ghost Rider's going to be part of that, right? Not Night Stalkers, but, but the Midnight Suns. Yeah, it was essentially a whole line that spun out of Ghost Rider because Ghost Rider was so popular at the time. As I understand it, I mostly just read X-Men because my funds were limited, but I remember thinking Ghost Rider and all those other things were just the fucking coolest. You can get a brief and peculiar window into the Darkhold and what it does in the X-Men 92 ongoing if, if that's your jam, by the way. I feel like that might not be the most representative take on it, but maybe actually it would be the most most representative take. It's sort of that distilled. The important thing is that it's all about vampires, and also it's kind of Microsoft Bob. Uh, it's a long story. But in Ghost Rider right now, so the current host is a dude named Dan Ketch, or Danny Ketch, but he actually died last issue. The previous host was Johnny Blaze, who is possibly the possessor of one of the greatest names in all of comics. Wait, question. Was Danny Ketch actually killed last issue? Because it seemed to me from the narration in here that he was just gravely wounded and, and Ghost Rider isn't sure if, if Ketch is in fact dead. Well, kind of that. He was fighting, I think yeah, the villain was Blackheart or no, Blackout maybe. And basically, uh, just like most superheroes who can transform, if you're super injured and you transform into your superhero alter ego, then your injuries are sort of on pause. So right now, maybe he's crossed the line into death, maybe he hasn't, but Ghost Rider has to stay Ghost Rider, which is to say, a skeleton on fire, to make sure that Catch doesn't die. Or die more. The most important thing about Ghost Rider, the thing you have to remember, is that it is incredibly dramatic at all times. The narration is dramatic. The dialogue is dramatic. The action is dramatic. Yeah, the panel borders are dramatic. Like, 
it feels like the kind of comic you'd get super into if you had watched your VHS of The Crow so many times that it had started to distort. It is exactly that feel. You are so, so right. And before anyone um actuallys me, yes, I know it was a fucking comic first. Of course. I mean, of course. God, we watched that movie a lot back in the day, didn't we? It was it was full of dramatics and feelings, and, like, the main guy died making it, which made it especially intense, man. Right. Okay, but let's take a sec and talk about Ghost Rider. So we've talked about the basics of his deal. He's also a spirit of vengeance, or is he or isn't he? But the important part is... He's a flaming skeleton on a motorcycle. I know we keep coming back to that, but let's think about this, because in a comic, you're like, yeah, okay, flaming skeleton on a motorcycle. A flaming skeleton on a motorcycle. The forces of vengeance have empowered a guy on a motorcycle to be on fire and kill people. It's kind of like... And a skeleton. And a skeleton. And I I love that the motorcycle is intrinsic to it, by the way. He can telepathically summon the motorcycle and stuff in, in times of dire need. And that's why it's great, because think about, like, the Silver Surfer, for instance. Like, okay, he's this cosmic entity, he's very angsty, you know, he's in some of the more serious and dramatic cosmic stories out there in the Marvel Universe. But the fact is, he's a guy spray-painted silver on a fucking surfboard. A surfboard. Like, what's next? I mean, a few years ago, would we have had, like, I don't know, the white wheelie, who's some being of pure light on those little wheelie shoes, so that if he if he leans back on his heels, he can sort of roll everywhere very awkwardly and then fall over? I'm honestly a little surprised that we haven't seen a superhero to who those to whom those were central. I know, right? Or like, I don't know, those hoverboard things that you also mainly just fall off of, or a Segway? Okay, we need a character who rides a Segway through the astral plane, righting the psychological and psychic wrongs of the Marvel Universe while having an incredibly fuel-efficient and very safe people-moving device to do so. I feel really good about this. Except it would be like Pesegway, like it would be spelled like psychic. There would be a silent P at the beginning. Oh, yeah, like the scimitar. Exactly. Wait, does the Segway itself have any powers like on the material plane that echo it existing in an astral form? Um, I think that uh, Segway has to actually drive towards somebody's head on the Segway and then it sort of gets more translucent and shrinks down and goes into their forehead, kind of like in Psychonauts when you go through the doors on people's foreheads. But anyway, Ghost Rider. But anyway, Ghost Rider is in New Orleans, and it's currently Mardi Gras because, of course it is, because it's a story set in New Orleans. It's kind of like how every anime ever takes place during Cherry Blossom season. Just about every New Orleans story ever takes place during Mardi Gras. And what's happening this particular Mardi Gras is murder. Bernard Labranche of the Thieves Guild eats his midnight breakfast while counting diamonds when he is attacked by a mysterious masked stranger with long claws and creepy red eyes. This mysterious assassin is, in fact, a capital A assassin. He's a member of the Assassin's Guild, and he is carrying on the Thieves and the Assassin's blood feud. Now, we'll later find out that this shadowy man is really a dude named Julian. In fact, Belladonna's brother, who Gambit didn't actually kill, he's the main connection to Gambit's solo miniseries in addition to Belladonna herself. But for right now, he just looks sort of like a silhouette with an angry red mouth and eyes. Down on the street, Ghost Rider awakens, and people assume he's just in a Mardi Gras costume, including another guy dressed as a skeleton. It's pretty adorable, but this is where we get our first example in this crossover of glorious Ghost Rider narration. Blood. It seeks me out wherever I go. The blood of the innocent. And others. How little I know about those that I am compelled to protect. To avenge. How little I know about myself. 
Am I willing to face the truth about myself? Am I a demon? Or something else? Something more? Dear Diary, only you understand me. And then he puts his headphones back on to listen to more Stabbing Westward, but unfortunately he's on fire and he doesn't have ears. <laughs> it is unfortunate. So, like we said, his main host was mortally wounded by that villain Blackout, so Ghost Rider's actually in New Orleans to find the wonderfully named Johnny Blaze, his previous host, to try to get some help with this whole situation. Johnny Blaze is currently busy running a carnival. We'll get back to him later. So, Ghost Rider heads to the first place he can think of to look for Johnny Blaze, which is the most dramatic church he can find. And there he discovers the aforementioned Silhouette Man. I mean, let's just call him Julian. He's Julian. Is he identified as Julian within this series? He is not, no. That doesn't come up until the Gambit miniseries. For right now, he doesn't have a name. Yeah, I didn't think so. I just wanted to be clear about that. We know that he's Julian. No one within this comic, except presumably for him, knows that he's Julian, and he's never revealed to be Julian on the page within the issues we're talking about. And here he's murdering a member of the Thieves Guild, and that member's pregnant wife. Ghost Rider does not like this. Killer! Innocent blood has been spilled. Yes, quite warm and salty, too. Now what have we here? Another thief? What is your power? And Ghost Rider swings his weighted chain with a satisfying thwomp and responds, The power of vengeance. This is weird, and it's weird specifically because the Thieves Guild doesn't typically have powers. The Thieves get long life, the Assassins get powers. I mean, we find that out later. I kind of feel like once they got to that plot point, they sort of forgot about the fact that Thieves apparently all have unique powers in this version. Or maybe there's just a story we hadn't read. I mean, we're definitely in the era where there's so much going on and so many dropped plot lines, it's kind of hard to tell sometimes. Yeah, and the Thieves and Assassins and their politics and how they intermix are hopelessly and horrifically complicated. So it is possible that we just missed something here. But I, I thought the assassins had the powers and the thieves had the long life, except for Gambit, who's a mutant, and so on and so forth. Anyway, Ghost Rider follows the fleeing assassin down the church stairs into the subterranean catacombs. He does this on his motorcycle, by the way. He is, he is definitely riding his motorcycle into the catacomb, only to discover more assassins. The assassins are clad in, in black leather and they, they all have these fuchsia capes and neon green hair and shit. And I like, God, I love how much the secret subtle guilds wear neon. Okay, here's my theory. I think these are the ancestors of Trevor Fitzroy's future mullet goons from his timeline. Like, they're the next evolution of these very subtle, stealthy, shadowy neon signs. But these aren't just any assassins. These assassins promptly turn into Brood. The Brood, as you may recall, are the alien franchise xenomorph-esque aliens that we've seen in X-Men a couple times before. There was the Brood Saga, one of the better early X-Men, well, Bronze Age X-Men stories ever. And then there was a story that took place in Denver where the X-Men fought a bunch of Brood who themselves had gotten powers. That's got that famous cover with Wolverine half-transformed into a Brood. It's pretty great. But as far as we know, the Brood on the Earth, at least, were all dead. Well, apparently not. And these brood immediately turn on Ghost Rider because I guess even, even spirits of vengeance and or demons and or skeletons that are also on fire can be implanted with brood embryos. I guess those brood embryos have like asbestos coatings or something. They're pretty hardy. 
I guess so. Well, the blue team in the meantime has made their way to New Orleans, and the blackbirds in the shop, so they've taken a plane and are now in a very, very cozy convertible. Well, they've taken multiple planes because they couldn't get tickets on the same flight, so Rogue and Belladonna flew together, to, I assume, and just talked shit about Gambit the entire time. And I really love that. I really love that in this arc, while we see some tension, which rings pretty true, there isn't any significant rivalry between Rogue and Belladonna. Like, it seems like they're getting along well. They're not, I mean, they don't overlap much socially in this, but it's it's not about the two of them immediately being at each other's throats. And I, I really appreciate that. I dig that, yeah. Now, who is at someone else's throat? There's a segue for you, but not a, a segue is the police officer who pulls the X-Men over, at which point Wolverine slices the cop's gun in half, Jubilee shoots fireworks in his face, Cyclops shoots out the police car's tires, and then Gambit just straight up blows up the car, and they all leave. So the next time you get pulled over, just remember, you can try to explain the context for why you were speeding, or you can just do that. Don't do that. That's not, that's not a good plan. Also, the X-Men are just... Man, what the hell?! It's 1992. That the hell. Can't they just take the fucking ticket and not pay it or something? They have so much money. That school is, like, rich. Well, I guess they're in too much of a hurry, and thus they have to all use their powers one after another. And they do indeed catch up with Rogue and Belladonna and quickly head to that church following Wolverine's sniffer and find the dead folks. They were named Jean-Martin and Michelle. They're recognized by our natives. Wait a minute. We should have gotten those names before they die, not after, goddammit. Well, yeah, this isn't Claremont anymore. You you don't actually get all of their tragic backstory before their lives are cruelly snuffed out abruptly on the page. Sometimes you have to pick things up afterwards. And uh, Wolverine's magical nose leads them into the catacombs and directly into battle with the brood. We do get a brief explanation from Cyclops to Jubilee about what's up, but it's very, very brief, and it's during part of the fight scene. There is no time here in 1992 for anything but drama or action. And action we have, the X-Men, including Logan, who has purged two brood embryos by this time. They point out to Belladonna that there's no going back from a brood embryo. The thieves are effectively dead. <laughs> what? Yeah, I think it's just because Wolverine realizes that you can only purge your brood embryo if you're a main character, and these Teeves were not. Yeah, I was gonna say, I will, I'm thinking of the means that they've had to do that, and it always requires things like Shi'ar tech, or some sort of magic, or the Emkron crystal, or whatever, and they don't, they don't have access to any of that stuff, or the Soul Sword. They don't have any of that right now, so presumably that's sort of what's going on. Well, the X-Men fight against these transformed Teeves. These, to clarify, are a whole bunch of Teeves who were previously alive, not the two who were dead on the surface. But unfortunately, Ghost Rider is there. And that's, that's unfortunate because he's very, very spiky. Like if a brood met with Logan's Weapon X, Nightmares met with the stuff I used to draw in my school notebooks when I was 12. This dude has been infected with a brood embryo. He is transforming into a brood, but is still a flaming skeleton. I don't know how that works, but I cannot deny that it's pretty fucking cool. It's so cool that it is, in fact, what opens the next issue as well, which is X-Men number nine. Almost opens it, because the first panel of this comic is all of Blue Team just staring in shock and disgust while the transformation takes place. And I talk some shit about Jim Lee sometimes, but he is so good at teenage what-the-fuck face. Right. Like, just the, the what is even happening, this is not okay, I want to go home, jubilee face. 
so this Ghost Rider looks a little bit uh, different. So this is Jim Lee drawing. It was Ron Wagner before. And um, now he's not just covered in giant spikes. He looks kind of like a xenomorph, like his skull is all stretched out. Yeah, and, and we actually get to see more of the transformation, and it's honestly pretty awesome. Now, as it turns out, the brood plot was to infect all of the thieves and assassins, but they no longer need to do that now that they have Ghost Rider and will soon have the X-Men. A bunch of brood warriors attack. And Cyclops does a wonderfully 1992 Cyclops line. Enough grandstanding, people. There's a reason we're a team. Form on me and take a shot at anyone not in uniform. Stand down, Wolverine. This is so the Cyclops from the animated series, and I love him for it. He's got some really good moments in these issues, but yeah, this is, this is not one of them. The fight collapses the already fragile floor, and everyone falls down and gets split up for some brief one-on-one -on -one scenes, starting with Gambit and Belladonna, who have a come-to-Jesus conversation about their marriage. And I don't know, should we just sum this up? I, I feel like I'm not sure how comprehensible it's going to be. I mean, if 10-year-old me could sort of figure it out, I'm sure our listeners can. They're smart. Belladonna whaps Gambit in the face and begins, Being married is about love and understanding and sharing a future together, not about leaving your wife on a wedding night. I didn't have a choice. Don't seem like you had many choices in life. You married me on your family's say-so. You abandoned me for the same reason. One of the things about Belladonna is her accent also totally comes and goes. I had to leave. On account you killed me brother in self-defense. I know that. But you could have asked me to go with you into exile. You and me have been in love since before we could walk, Remy LeBeau. I would have left everything. Would have given my life for you. If only you asked. I know that, Belle. Which is why I left. Alone. Since I was a pup, the only thing I ever wanted was you for my wife. But when the marriage was arranged, we no longer had a choice. Don't you see, Cher? Leaving you to live your own life was the only way I had of making a choice that was my own. And what about me, Cher? What about the choice you took away from me? If it means anything at all, Belle, I'm sorry. It not you, it Gambit. <laughs> right, but I, I really love this dialogue. I mean, yes, there's the accent, although now that we read through that, that's actually a much milder example of both characters' accent than in the uh, rest of the story. But you get it. I mean, we know very little about Belladonna. We know even less about the nature of their relationship and marriage, Gambits and Belladonnas. But enough comes through in the dialogue and in, in Jim Lee's body language and facial expressions and even the, like, the composition of the panels that I think it really works. I, I think if anything, you know, pulling a Jean Grey gets, gets used to refer to abrupt resurrection, but I feel like it would fit this particular scenario just as well. The, well, if it, it doesn't count if it's preordained. Yeah, and that fits with something Gambit would do. I'm not saying it was a good call, but I am saying it seems in character. Now, as the fighting continues elsewhere, Beast and Wolverine realize that brood-possessed Ghost Rider is still arguing with Ghost Rider's human host. Also, as if to make up for the relative legibility of, of their previous scene, um, Belladonna refers to Ghost Rider as <clears throat> Mr. Bootymon. Why? Okay, so I felt like I had to be missing something, like maybe the Booty Man was a thing in New Orleans? I, I don't know, so I googled it. I should note that Booty here is spelled like Baby Booty, B-O-O-T-I-E, not like B-O-O-T-Y, the colloquial spelling um, referring to butts. 
I mean, maybe she meant to say Boogeyman and got confused by her accent, but okay, so I looked it up, and there's a song called Booty Man. It's actually written by conservative, parodic country musician and comedian Tim Wilson, but he didn't write that until 2003, which was like way later than 1992, so I don't know. Maybe he was basing it off of this issue? That seems unlikely. It, it seems very unlikely. There are actually a number of songs with that title, and all of them are pretty much what you'd expect. And none of them even reference Ghost Rider at all. So, um, well, and that's to their detriment, I think. I mean, that's to the detriment of most songs. Right. Elsewhere, Psylocke flirts real hard at Cyclops, who is pretty intensely not into it on account of being underground in the middle of a fight. And Jubilee, meanwhile, discovers a bunch of people in, in brood cocoon things, where the brood were apparently saving them for later, while going after, and the, the brood going after, all of the, the young children of the Teeves and Assassins. I think these might actually be the children of the Teeves and Assassins that had already been captured. It's kind of hard to tell. No, no, because one of them specifically says the brood are going after the children. Ah, okay, well there we go. Jubilee is terrified as she sees all of this, and her mix of fear and disgust and constant self-narration to get herself through it, that's a good role for her. That's that's a role that, um, you know, characters like, say, Shadowcat, other young members of the teams, or some of the exterminators have never really done. You occasionally see Boom Boom do this in, you know, another of the superficial similarities between the two characters, but it's a good role in a book like this. We have all these hardened heroes who are just you know, badasses through even the worst circumstances, and Jubilee's there to remind us, actually, this shit is super fucked up. I was gonna say we see Kitty do that, do this a little bit. I'm thinking specifically of, of the issue where she uh, fights the Nagari. <laughs> the others you know more reference. The others you know more reference, but I realized when that happens with her, she's usually on her own. The fact that the, the brood are now going after the kids raises the question of why the Brood want these particular families. And Ghost Rider Brood explains that it's because the Teeves and Assassins have been programmed over self several generations by an unnamed third party with traits that the Brood are now eager to take advantage of. And we don't get to learn the details because Gambit shows up and zaps Ghost Rider for starting to tell other people's family secrets and also presumably for being a homicidal Brood. Now... Everyone's back together at this point, and the fight escalates because Psylocke headstabs Ghost Rider with her psychic knife, and she is overwhelmed with rad demon stuff in his head. But lucky for her, someone else was able to hitch along. And that is Belladonna. Belladonna joins Psylocke in Ghost Rider's mind, and she's there to help Psylocke fight her way out. I really enjoy that Belladonna's powers are basically whatever is convenient in that exact panel. Like, energy projection, telepathy, well, maybe it's just those two things. But still, that's very convenient. Well, they comment on it. Psylocke basically asks, is there any limit to the weird stuff you can do? And Belladonna's like, yeah, not that I've found. Although she says it with a, you know, Belladonna accent. Now, Belladonna isn't the only person who's hitched along, unfortunately. The brood possessing Ghost Rider is also there, and it has followed them to the mind of Danny Ketch, which it can now destroy and complete its takeover. So Belladonna uses her Belladonna powers to fight or at least distract the brood. That buys Psylocke some time, and she psychic knifes the connection between the brood and Danny Ketch. And Danny is, well, if not saved, at least no longer brood-possessed. Ghost Rider is back. And is on fire as ever. But unfortunately... That was it for Belladonna. Something about, you know, using her powers against this psychic brood on the astral plane or whatever the brood did to retaliate. She's dying. She showed up just a couple issues ago, and it's the end of her life. Yeah, she's got just enough time left for, for one brief regretful conversation with Gambit during which he confirms that he, in fact, 
would have chosen her given the option. Could have been magic, Remy. It was, Cher. Every moment. Now, she's not dead dead, she's just mostly dead, and Gamut's miniseries is going to involve him getting her the elixir of life. Um, also, Rogue is going to steal her memories at some point. It's, it's the whole thing. So Gambit sends Belladonna's body, which he's pretty convinced is 100% dead, back with the surviving Teeves. And Gambit and the X-Men gear up for... Vengeance! And that takes us to the final chapter of the storyline, Ghost Rider number 27, which is titled Vengeance Pure and Simple. Same creative team as last time. I gotta say, though, going from Jim Lee's art to Ron Wagner... Ron Wagner suffers a bit by the comparison. This isn't Jim Lee at the height of his powers. Honestly, I think that was around the Extinction Agenda. But still, it's you know, freaking Jim Lee. Yeah, um, it's okay. It's not terrible. I think the inking, Witherby's inks kind of elevate the art in ways that, that it wouldn't, wouldn't be otherwise. But um, we open outside of town where the continually entertainingly named Johnny Blaze leaves the carnival caravan that he owns and is told by his, his buddy Clara that his quote-unquote, friend, is in the French Quarter. And apparently when you say that to Johnny Blaze in scare quotes, he knows that you mean Ghost Rider and not his hookup. Couldn't they be one and the same? Probably not. Ghost Rider is a skeleton and on fire. I'm just saying, penis bones. But regardless, off to the plot, Johnny Blaze goes, and in the plot, we are still deep in the improbable catacombs under New Orleans. Yeah, whatever Wolfenstein told you, I'm pretty sure that New Orleans does not actually have catacombs. But this is a really cool take on it that Ron Wagner draws. I gotta give him, give him some credit for that. It's There's this, like, mysterious machinery strung up everywhere. These alien-style, alien the movie, uh, egg pods in this misty blanket that covers the ground. Alien foliage everywhere. I mean, we are going hard for referencing the alien movies. I mean, it's even to the point where when they find the children, they're sort of in the gooey walls, like at the end of Aliens, but... I'm okay with that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with an homage as long as you do it with love and with care. And I think this interpretation of The Brood, really most interpretations of The Brood, are perfectly valid references to those movies. Speaking of the children, props to Cyclops here for pushing back on the vengeance at all costs thing to be like, no, we're going to find and rescue the kids and then maybe vengeance. Right? But Ghost Rider points out that the path of vengeance leads to the Brood Queen, so he and Gambit leave the boring child rescuing to everybody else, and they go to take that queen out. What do you th- how do you think he perceives the path of, ven- of vengeance? Do you think it's like a little neon-dotted line or something? I think it's sort of like a quest indicator in an MMORPG. So, like, he has his mini-map in the top right, and then, you know, somewhere along the outer perimeter, there's a little star or something, or maybe just a little flaming skull. Logan, who, um honestly, like like Ghost Rider is largely irrelevant to this story, is along because you can't have a badass 90s triumvirate without Logan, and also because someone has to say this line. There's something about the Brood Queen I need to check out. I gotta see if she bleeds. Yep. So, despite the fact that we're not in a Jim Lee book anymore, every other panel is still all the heroes posing and looking badass, as Lee tends to do. There's this wonderful panel of Ghost Rider cha-chinking his chain taut in the foreground, and then, like, Wolverine and Gambit are back-to-back with their claws and cards out, respectively. I mean, they're seriously posing for a trading card when they're doing almost anything, and that's fine. This is the early 90s, and would people actually do that? Would they actually pose that way every four seconds? Well, no, but it looks fucking cool, so who cares? Um, also, I think it's nice that mid-vengeance, um, Ghost Rider does take the time to answer Wolverine's question. They bleed. Evil alien blood. 
It helps wash away the innocent blood that has been spilled. I bet this guy goes to Vampire the Masquerade LARPs regularly. I bet his laundry is just hellish to do. Oh man, well you only ever have to do it on cold, it's all black. Anyway, so as the triumvirate of 90s badassitude continues toward the brood queen and are confronted by more brood, that silhouette man, you know, uh, Gambit's ex-brother-in-law shows up. So he's trying to make nice with the brood queen because he accidentally vengeancely murdered a bunch of thieves and she was planning on converting them into brood. So he's going to play nice by bringing these three to her to use as hosts. Or by claiming he brought them. I mean, really, he's just showing up and being like, no, it was my idea, really. Well, that too. Now, above, the other X-Men are continuing to fight and, like, rescue all the children, and I really enjoy that Ghost Rider has telepathically summoned his motorcycle, and this flaming motorcycle just drives by them. I can just see them looking over and just being like, eh, whatever. This is our life now, I guess. Does it have a name? The motorcycle? Yeah. I don't know. What would its name be? What should its name be? I, I feel like it would probably have a horse name, so, like... I don't, I don't know what, what do you name horses? Spot? Misty? Ebony Shadow. That's not a horse name, that's a katana name. I mean, it's the 90s. The same, they're the same thing. I'm fairly sure that's not true. I mean, you could ride a katana. I definitely don't recommend it, though. Well, maybe if it's in its sheath. Nah, probably still a bad idea. But there is fighting going on everywhere. And maybe that's how the goddamn gigantic brood queen can sneak up on everybody while they're doing their thing. Maybe she learned something from GW Bridge and his helicopter from that one X-Force story, the time that they just sneak up on X-Force in a helicopter. And she then, having confronted them, proceeds to run away to go find the human children and kill them in revenge, because vengeance is the word of the day. If somebody says vengeance, scream real loud. Don't do that, especially if you're listening to this podcast on public transit. Fortunately... For the children, Ghost Rider's motorcycle, which may or may not be named Ebony Shadow, shows up at this moment, and he is able to zoom back to rescue the kids and assist Blue Team. There's more fighting, complete with her doing the usual, join me and be super cool again, but uh, Ghost Rider has no time for that nonsense, and instead just grabs the Brood Queen's claws, impales herself with them, and then pulls her skeleton out of her body like a fucking Mortal Kombat finishing move. Seriously, like he does the, why are you impaling yourself? Why are you impaling yourself thing? And then, okay, so when I first read this, I used to think that like Ghost Rider just pulled off her skin, but no, they specifically reference him pulling the skeleton out of her body. And later on, she says, I too have no use for flesh, demon. And so, yeah, I'm pretty sure he just literally pulled her skeleton out and it stayed fully intact, like a dinosaur skeleton in a museum. And this is the stupidest, most badass thing I have seen in a long time. Speaking of stupid, badass things, Johnny Blaze chooses this particular moment to show up um, complete with his ponytail, sunglasses, and trench coat, because goddammit, it, this is 1993? Uh, 1992. But okay, this guy, yeah, he definitely LARPs all the time. I'm pretty sure he was just on his way back, and that's why he's dressed like this. He shoots off the queen's head with his Hellfire shotgun, which is a shotgun that shoots Hellfire. And then Wolverine stabs its eyeball and throws it in the air, and Gambit blows it up with a card, and then Cyclops blasts it, so she's pretty dead. Jeez, what is she, a police car? 
<laughs> so aside from the police thing, what this really reminds me of is the end of the Extinction Agenda, where Havoc, Wolfsbane, and Richter very thoroughly finish off Cameron Hodge. And I think that's okay. I'm pretty sure it's not a deliberate reference, but that level of cathartic excess for a truly despicable and probably either inhuman or unkillable, depending, villain, like, I, I feel pretty okay with that. It doesn't feel sadistic. It just feels, I don't know, satisfying and 90s. And finally, Cyclops and Wolverine get a moment of bonding over the fact that both of them are really fine with killing as long as it's the brood. Cyclops says, For a change, I agree with your methods, Wolverine. I'm thrilled. It's so great. Ghost Rider and Johnny Blaze ride off after what I assume must be an incredibly complex secret handshake and claim things are over, but Gambit feels otherwise. It is far from over. Not until the traitor of both clans is found. The shadowy man, Julian, on a roof, of, of course. course, replies, Traitor is such an ugly word, Remy. I prefer visionary. A visionary with a taste for vengeance and blood. Yours, Gambit, the X-Men, and Ghost Rider. I'll be seeing you soon. Me and my family. Why does he not have an accent? Uh, I don't know. Maybe whatever transforms him into this confusing character design also ripped out his accent. Like, they took his soul and his accent. Maybe your accent is part of your soul? Belladonna's soul is very confusing. Ooh, maybe, maybe his accent is attached to his skeleton and his skeleton's not there anymore. But no, he's still standing. Damn it. Yeah, Ghost Rider pulled out the Brood Queen skeleton. I suppose it's possible that Ghost Rider could have also pulled out this guy's skeleton. I feel like Ghost Rider probably pulls out a lot of skeletons. It's how he keeps himself regularly stocked with the backup skeleton parts. Oh, right. Yeah, it turns out he's actually not very durable. His bones crack and shatter, like, all the time, so he's got a big old, like, bag of replacements on the back of his motorcycle. It's like when you get an old car, sometimes you have to get other, more beaten-up versions of the same old car and sort of cannibalize them for parts. Suddenly, this makes a great deal more sense. I wish I could tell my 10-year-old self. He would have been much less confused. Speaking of people who are confused, uh, we have some listeners, and they have some questions. Alex Lunal asks on Twitter... If you could decree one day a national holiday based on an X-Men and or Marvel theme slash event, what would it be? Well, I have always been partial to Doomsday. Um, Doomsday is an actual canonical Latvian holiday in the Marvel Universe, and it is celebrated. Um, it doesn't have a set date because it's celebrated whenever the hell Doctor Doom feels like it. Like, that's officially its thing. I, I can totally respect that. On a more serious note, I think it would be worth like a memorial-style holiday um, to commemorate the anniversary of the destruction of Genosha and the end of its mutant utopia era as like millions of people died by Sentinels at the beginning of Grant Morrison's run. I mean, you know, hold up some candles or something. Aw, uh, you made it all sad. Oh, uh, okay, well, uh, happier then. How about Subtext Day? That would be an X-Men thing. Okay, no, you know what? You know what? This holiday doesn't exist, but I swear here and now that if Kitty Pride ever kisses a woman on panel, I will declare a national goddamn holiday and there will be singing in the streets. Oh, so that wouldn't be subtext day. That would just be text day at that point. Yes. Yes, it would. Okay, so now that we've got that out of the way, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Hey, possibly my favorite character is Ricky Barnes. But knowing that she started in the terrible Heroes Reborn mess, I was wondering who your favorite characters to come out of awful events or comics are. Oh, I totally have one for this. Layla Miller, easily. So I was not really a fan of the House of M storyline, and she was kind of part of why. I mean, it was a cool alternate universe. You know, what if mutants were on top? What if Magneto ran things? And it was fun to see the characters we know and love in different roles. Like, I think that the Hellions were basically S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. They took over the new X-Men book at the time. 
But the plot involved Wolverine being the main character because Wolverine's always the main character. And the MacGuffin that was Layla Miller, this little girl, her deal was that she could remember the old world because that's what the plot required. She was purely a plot device and so boring. But then she showed up in X-Factor, in the X-Factor Investigations era, against all odds, and her whole, like, I know stuff gimmicks annoyingness was played with in really intriguing ways. And then her character arc was, like, way weirder and more twisty-turny than anybody ever expected, and her powers weren't what people thought they were. And she ended up becoming one of my very favorite characters. She's wonderful in that book. Yeah, I actually, I have nothing to add. Layla is absolutely my answer to this, too, for pretty much the same reasons. If we're talking about something more uh, contemporary to our coverage, I mean, as much as I love Brood Trouble and the Big Easy, the fact is the early 90s are a goddamn mess, and shit, Bishop came out of them, and Bishop's a great character. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. And the mic today, I believe, goes to the Brood Queen. You had brood eggs within the flesh and bone of your bodies, fleshlings. You hated the power that came with being one of us. Though you have purged our eggs, as none have done before. Well, one. Okay, two. Anyway, you shall crave that power until your dying day. Give in, mammals. Let me- Wait, what are you doing, Matt are you seriously impaling my face with my own claw? That is so not cool! And Ariel Brown, are you freaking ripping out my skeleton? That doesn't even make sense! You flashlings are so fucked up! And we'll go from there to the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you were traveling to deal with a matter of a simple family rivalry, Gareth G. Funk Mitchell. You expected you might broker a treaty, blow up a few minor functionaries, and then be on your way, leaving your past behind as you have so often attempted to do. And so you missed the invisible hand of Arkham, guiding you to your doom in the catacombs of New Orleans. Really, you should have expected that you'd probably drown. And with that... Jay and Miles explain The X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the externals show up to get their grubby hands all over X-Force. And continuity may never be the same. Is it ever, though? I mean, like, you know, worse. Worse.